Chapter Twenty Seven of Flowing Gold by Rex Beach. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Buddy Briscoe had difficulty in getting out of the valley on his way for a doctor, for never had the roads been like this. He drove recklessly. Where necessary, he disregarded fences and pushed across pastures that were hub-deep. He even burst through occasional thickets in defiance of axle and tire. It was a mad journey, like the ride in a death-defying movie serial. Only by some miraculous power of cohesion did the machine hold together, and thus enable him to keep it under way and bring it out to high ground. Since he had not taken time before leaving to change into dry clothing, he was drenched to the skin. He was, in fact, sheeted with mud like the car itself. To find a doctor, however, was a problem. Buddy tried first one camp, then another, but without success. Meanwhile, the downpour continued, and the creeks rose steadily, obliging him to make numerous detours and to follow the ridge roads wherever possible. He was aching in every bone and muscle from the pounding he had received. His arms were numb. His back was broken. He drowned his motor finally in fording a royally stream, and abandoned the car. He came into Ranger that afternoon on the back of a truck horse that he had borrowed, without the owner's consent. For a time it seemed that if he got a doctor at all, he would have to follow a similar procedure. But the Briscoe name was powerful, and Buddy talked in big figures, so eventually he set out on the return journey, this time in a springless freight wagon drawn by the stoutest team in town. A medical man was on the seat beside him. Progress was maddeningly slow, incredibly tedious. Creek beds, long dry, had become foaming torrents in places. Even the level roads were belly-deep and the horses floundered. When one of them fell, it required infinite labor and patience to get it upon its feet again. It was after midnight when Buddy and his miserable companion gained the comparative easy-going of the last ridge, that flinty range beyond which lay the Briscoe farm. Here they drove into the glare of lightning and under a sky that rumbled almost steadily, for a frightful electric storm had broken. Here it was that they saw what havoc was being wrought. They counted several blazing wells ahead of them. Buddy stopped at a drilling camp where light showed the occupants to be astir, and there he received confirmation of his fears. The flats beyond were inundated to a depth rendering travel impossible, and although some of the men stationed out there had managed to work their way back, others were for the time being hopelessly cut off. What was more alarming by far, in view of these blazing beacons, was the news that a huge gusher on Sixteen was wild and pouring its inflammable flood out upon the surface of the water. Buddy stood in the midst of a spreading puddle from his steaming clothes, and through chattering teeth announced, My sister and Mr. Gray are out there. I gotta get through. How you gonna get through, kid? One of the drillers inquired. Our men had to swim in places. I guess I can swim if I try. Fella can do most anything if he has to. How about you, Doc? Buddy turned to his traveling companion. The latter shook his head positively. You're crazy, Briscoe. 
we'd probably drown. If we didn't, we'd be burned alive when that loose oil catches fire. Looks like it's bound to catch if this lightning keeps up, someone declared. Listen to that. Buddy cursed furiously and lurched toward the door. It took force to restrain him from going. That was indeed a night of terror in the oil fields, for destruction was wholesale, and to those who were fortunate enough to be in no danger, it was scarcely less trying than for the luckless ones out in the flooded area. Buddy Briscoe was half demented. At one time it seemed certain that the surface oil was aflame near his father's farm, and the pictures he conjured up were unbearable. The rain ceased with the passing of the electrical storm, but the late hours of the night were thick, and the fires continued to burn. It seemed as if the morning would never come. With the first light, Buddy mounted one of his horses, and regardless of admonitions, set out. In miles he had no great distance to go. Nevertheless, it was midday before he came in sight of his father's unpainted farmhouse, and when he dismounted at the front porch, he fell rather than walked through the door. He broke down and blubbered weakly when he saw Calvin Gray up and around, and apparently well. He collapsed into a chair and huddled there in a wet heap, the while he sobbed and laughed hysterically. He was considerably ashamed of his show of feeling. Even after he had been helped into the kitchen and his wet clothes had been stripped from him, he could tell little about his trip, but hot food and drink brought him around, and then, indeed, the story was one that deeply touched the elder man. Already the waters had ceased to rise, but Buddy's difficulty in getting through proved the folly of attempting escape for the time being. His horse had been forced to swim with him in more than one place. In others, he had waded waist-deep, stumbling through thickets, hauling the animal after him by main strength. There was nothing to do, it seemed, but a way to substance of the flood. Then, too, the boy was half dead for sleep. Under the circumstances, it was not easy for the elder man to face this delay. His affairs were in a precarious condition, and more in need of his immediate attention than ever before. To be cut off, therefore, to be lost for several days at this particular time, was more than a misfortune. It was a catastrophe. Such vague plans as he had considered, he was now forced to abandon. He could see ruin ahead. One purpose this enforced idleness did serve, however. It enabled him, nay, it forced him, to evolve a new scheme of relief. Some minds become paralyzed in moments of panic. Others function with unexpected clearness and ingenuity. And his was such a mind. An idea came to him finally which seemed sound, the more he thought about it. Indeed, its possibilities galvanized him, and he wondered why he had been so long in arriving at it. It was spectacular, daring. It might prove to be impossible of accomplishment. Nevertheless, it was worth trying, and he could scarcely wait for Buddy Briscoe to wake up so that he could put it to him. Late that evening, after Allie had gone to bed, he had a long talk with his young friend, during which he told him more about his affairs than he had made known to Roswell the banker. But he listened with the closest attention. He drew a deep breath at last and said, I knew you was in deep, but I thought it was just your way. Now I know it was Nelson's crew that fired our gasser. 
Why, they might have cost us thousands, yes, hundreds of thousands, if it had been the kind of a gusher we figured on. Say, the speaker's brow drew together in an angry scowl. What ails this Nelson, anyhow, trying to get you shot and firing your wells and everything? He once did me a great injury. What kind? There was a pause. I'd rather not go into that now, buddy. To repeat what I've been telling you, however, the situation is this. I've gone as far as I can go with the backing I have, and I must make a quick turn. Strike one final blow or give up. Nelson and I are like two wrestlers, floundering on the mat. We're both tired, groggy, and out of breath. Whichever one gets the first hold will win, for the other lacks strength to break it. Do you think your father would trust me? Do you think he'd go in blind on my say-so? If he won't, I will. I've got money. So's Allie. Gray declined this offer with a positive shake of the head. It must appeal to him on its merits. I wouldn't permit you to go contrary to his judgment. Judgment? What is Pa's judgment worth? He knows it's no good, and so do we. Everybody's trying to do him up but you. You're the only one he trusts, and the same's here. There's my bankroll. You can shoot the whole piece. I don't care if it never comes back. Trying to get you killed and spoiling a well on me. Thank you, buddy. You make me slow to trust my own judgment. I seem to be developing a conscience. But I'm sure this is the thing to do. For you and your father as well as for me. People can't stand still. They must go forward. The Briscoe fortune must grow or it will crumble. I don't know if we've got as much in us as you seem to think, the boy said, doubtfully. Look at Allie, and you, too. You took hold of this field work and ran it like a man. I said you make a hand, and you have. The day is coming when people like you, who went from poverty to affluence overnight, will retrace that journey. That's a time when the truly dramatic story of the Texas oil boom will be written. Then will come the real tragedy, and you mustn't be caught in it. Money isn't a servant, buddy. It is a master, and a mighty stern, relentless master at that. When your first well blew in, it didn't mean ease and enjoyment as you thought. It meant hard work for the rest of your life. If you'd have talked to me like this, when I went off to school, the boy said, after a moment of consideration, maybe I'd made myself swallow some more education, even if I had to take it out of a bottle along with the little kids. Gray smiled. You have common sense, at least, and that's something you can't get in school. Men wear smooth from contact with one another, and it is time you got in touch with something bigger than mere drilling. If you're willing, I'll take you to Wichita Falls with me. Willing? Buddy's eyes sparkled. Guiltily, he confessed, It's been pretty lonesome out here with the scorpions, but I wanted to show you I could make good. Do you drink any more? Haven't touched a drop. I don't reckon I ever will, either. I don't take to the idea of backtracking to this farm and getting old in overalls, like you say. I'm sort of penurious, and I aim to keep what little sense I got. A fellow's as dull as I am can't afford to drink. One thing more, Gray nodded approvingly. I want you to promise me that you won't fall in love with the first woman you meet. I'd never be able to lick you again. Buddy showed his strong white teeth in a broad grin. I promise. That boy with a bass voice cured me. 
I'm going to be a hermit. News of the damage wrought by the recent storm was naturally of grave concern to Henry Nelson, but owing to the fact that lines were down, about his only source of information during the days immediately following it was the press reports. He was reading the Dallas papers with interest one morning when his attention was arrested by the name of Calvin Gray. Now Gray's name in print affected the banker almost as disagreeably as did a sight of the man himself. Therefore it was with intense resentment that he read the article in which it appeared. It was a vividly written account of the former's experience during the flood, and due, no doubt, to Gray's personal touch, it read a good deal like fiction. The man had a unique turn for publicity, a knack for self-advertising that infuriated Nelson. To read this, anybody would think that he was one of the dominant figures in the oil industry, and that his enterprises were immensely successful. With a sneer, Nelson flung the paper aside. So that was how it had happened. The well had been fired. Henry believed he could account for that. But a miracle had quenched the flame. Falling drill stems. Who ever heard of such a thing? Such luck was uncanny. Enough to give one the creeps. If Gray were tied hand and foot and thrown into a river, somebody would drag him out. And with his pockets full of fish. And to be marooned for days in the midst of a blazing lake? Damnation. Well, luck like that was bound to change. It had changed. The note of assurance in the self-edited story was patently counterfeit, or so Henry told himself, for surely the fellow must know by this time that his race was run. Probably this was a desperate effort to secure further backing. If so, it would fail. Henry believed that he had weakened his enemy's support so completely that he would fall of his own weight. He considered it, in fact, about the cleverest move he had ever made to dispose of a block of bank stock in such a way as not only to tide him over his own difficulties, but also to make allies of Gray's associates, the very men who had been fighting him. Those men were through with the scoundrel now, and who else could he appeal to once they abandoned him? Nobody. No, the ice had been thin at times, Henry had felt it bending under him. But he was safe at last. The crossing had been made. So much accomplished, now that the fellow was down and could no longer fight back. It was time to see that Barbara Parker learned the truth about her gallant suitor. The next time Tom Parker came into the bank, Henry called him into his private office and had a talk with him. Old Tom listened silently. Nevertheless, it was plain that he was deeply shocked. "'I suppose you ain't lying,' he said coldly, when the banker had finished. "'It's a matter of record, Tom. He can't deny it.' "'Why did you hold off so long?' "'We're not exactly friends. He foolishly believes that I had something to do with his disgrace, and he has done his best to injure me. Under the circumstances, I couldn't very well say anything. I wouldn't speak now, except for the fact that Bob is interested in him, and, well, I'm interested in Bob. She has been interested in him from the first. I don't see that the circumstances are much different than they have been, Tom said sourly. Put it down to jealousy, if you wish. Henry was impatient. And I don't know as Bob ever encouraged you to think. Perhaps not. 
but she is the only woman I ever saw that I'd make Mrs. Nelson. What was it he did? Conduct on becoming an officer and a gentleman is the way the record stands. That covers a lot. Did he welch, quit under fire? No. Steal something? No. Woman scrape? There was a woman concerned. Pretty nasty mess, Tom. He's the sort of man to intrigue any foolish woman. Women can't see far. I suppose so. Mr. Parker rose stiffly. But we don't have to worry about Bob. She ain't foolish, and her eyesight is good. She's got more sense than all three of us men. With this noncommittal remark, the father limped out. But Tom was more deeply troubled than he had shown. Nothing to be said against a man could have weighed more heavily with him than this particular charge. To a man of his type, dereliction of duty was a crime. Dishonorable discharge from the army of his country was an appalling indictment, implying utter moral turpitude. Tom had known more than one fellow who was guilty of conduct unbecoming a gentleman. As a matter of fact, he had reason to respect certain of them for some of their ungentlemanly conduct. But conduct unbecoming an officer was something altogether different. He had never met but one such, and he had shot that fellow just above the bridge of the nose. A traitor to his oath of office, a man who could dishonor his state, his country, was worse than a renegade. His name was a hissing upon the lips of decent people. Scallywags like that were not to be tolerated. It seemed incredible that Gray could be one. Yes, and Bob liked the fellow, but so did he, for that matter. In great perturbation of spirit, Tom consulted Judge Halloran. The judge listened to him in astonishment. Angrily, he cried, The idea of his paying court to Bob! The insufferable insolence of it! Why, I consider it a personal affront. Where do you come in and get all head up, Tom growled. What? Halloran's irascible face reddened. Where do I? My God, haven't I? Don't I stand in local parentis to the girl? You ain't as local parentis to her as I am. She's my son. Trouble is, I like Mr. Gray. You don't think Henry could be lying? He wouldn't dare. It's too serious. No, Tom. There's just one thing to do. You and I will go directly to the scoundrel and tell him we are aware of his infamy and order him out of town, huh? That's the way to go about it. Cut deep and quickly. Tarn feathers are too good for... Trouble is, Tom repeated with a reluctant sigh, I like him, and I ain't sure. Trouble is you're a weakling, Halloran snapped. You are a sentimentalist. You lack my stern, uncompromising moral fiber. Like him? Pa. What has that to do with it? I have no weakness, no bowels of compassion. I am a Spartan. I am. You're a damned old fool, if you think you can run him. He's liable to run you. Judge Halloran was furious at this. He was hurt, too. He sputtered for a moment before managing to say, Have it your own way. You are trying to be unpleasant. Not that it requires conscious effort, but I won't argue with you. Don't. I hate arguments. That's why I don't like to talk this over with Mr. Gray. When I'm mad enough to argue, I'm mad enough to fight, and I fight better than I argue. If indeed Calvin Gray's affairs were in a condition as precarious as Nelson believed, 
He showed no signs of it when he returned to Wichita Falls. On the contrary, he was in an exultant mood. And even on the train, young Briscoe, who accompanied him, was amazed at the change that had come over his friend. With every mile they traveled, Gray's buoyancy increased, and upon his arrival he trod the street to his office like a conqueror. McWade and Stoner, who had come in for a conference, with minds preoccupied and faces grave, left with a smile and a jest. When they had gone, Gray rose with relief and surprised Buddy by saying, "'That's enough for now, thank goodness. Business is only one side of life, my boy. You are going to make this city your home, so you must begin by meeting the right people, the influential people, nicest people in the world right here, Buddy. Nicest place in the world, too.' Now to a youth who, for months, had been immured in the oil fields, Wichita Falls did indeed resemble a city of marvelous portent. Pavements, large buildings, bright lights, theaters. Buddy was thrilled. He prepared himself for introduction to oil operators, to men of finance sitting in marble and mahogany offices. He made ready to step forth into the big world. Great was his astonishment, therefore, when after a swift walk, Gray turned into a tiny frame insurance office on a side street. Funny place to look for people of influence, Buddy cogitated. A girl was seated at a desk. She rose at sight of Gray, and her face broke into a smile. Her greeting was warm. Her hand lingered in his. For the moment, neither of them seemed to remember Buddy's presence. When she did hear his name, however, her face lightened and she gave her hand to him as an old friend. When she smiled at him, as she had smiled at his companion, Buddy dropped his hat. He had never seen anyone in the least like this creature, and she knew Allie. She knew his mother. That was astonishing. He wondered why they had never said anything about it. Before she had finished telling him about that meeting in the store at Dallas, Buddy realized that here indeed was an influential person, a citizen of supreme importance. He had missed her name, but probably she owned that Dallas department store, or was the mayor of Wichita Falls. He had never before been so embarrassed. Mr. Gray certainly was a wonderful man. His poise, his air of respectful but easy familiarity with this, this angel, raised him immensely in Buddy's esteem. Think of joking, chatting, making pretty speeches, too, an angel. That was going some, the gall of it. They were talking about that big gasser of Gray's, the fire, the overflow, and the melodramatic occurrences of the past fortnight. Gray was telling her how Buddy had saved his life at the well, how he had risked his own later in braving the flood, and she was listening with eager smiles and nods and exclamations. When she turned admiring, grateful eyes upon the hero of Gray's story, and the story had been told in a manner to make Buddy no less. That youth, he felt himself suffocating, burning up. Mr. Gray sure knew how to talk, and he could sling language. And lie? Gosh, how beautiful he could lie! It was splendid of him to exaggerate like this, so as to set him in solid with the most important person in town. That was noble. People were awful nice, and this certainly was a grand city. Buddy knew he was going to get along fine, and he'd never forget 
Mr. Gray for this. After a while, when the two men were on the street again, Buddy inquired, Who is that young lady? I mean her name. Gray told him, then with a friendly twinkle, Well, speak out. What do you think of her? Oh, gee, Buddy cried, breathlessly, whereupon his companion laughed in perfect satisfaction. End of chapter 27